September 11, 2001 turned everyday citizens into forever heroes. Thousands of unthinkable acts of selfless courage that typified what is best about people, even strangers, have been recounted now for two decades. Without dedicated journalists, storytellers whose job it is to observe, recall, and report, many of these acts of heroism would never have been known. Award-winning reporter and columnist Dean Rothbart has captured in his new book, September 12th, An American Comeback Story, the backstory of the Wall Street Journal team that in less than 24 hours would tell the Pulitzer Prize-winning story of what happened on the ground on September 11th. This despite the journal offices across the street from the Twin Towers having been completely destroyed. How did they organize and operate when communications were lost? Who was in charge? What perilous split decisions did individuals make so that the world could know the truth behind the devastation of 9-11? And welcome to Gateface Execs podcast in a very special edition on a historic week. If you are older than 20 years old, then everybody remembers or has been told where they were on an historic and a tragic day in America's history. I'll never forget where I was on September 11th, 2001, working at Gameface with a bunch of clients in our offices that day who were waiting for me to arrive to provide some services to them. And instead, I arrived and had to deal with some very afraid, scared individuals because what they were watching and seeing on television in their hotel rooms that morning, trying frantically to get a hold of friends and relatives who were in the New York and Washington, D.C. areas. And the world has never been the same since. And I'm very pleased to welcome my friend and award-winning author, Dean Rothbart, who has written a fantastic book. September 12th is the name of the book. Dean's going to share with us more in our interview today on how you can get your copy of this. It's a compelling read with facts and stories that most of us have either never heard or have forgotten, which really bring us into the moments of September 11th and the aftermath. So, Dean, welcome to Game Face Execs podcast. Rob, it is truly a pleasure to be here with you and to have this conversation with you, especially this week. This is a milestone week for America and for the world in that we are marking 20 years since a day that many of us will never forget and can honestly remember in quite a bit of detail, almost like the Kennedy assassination for that generation of where were you, how did it all come about, etc. And so it's a good week to be talking about this. The other thing is that there's a lot of sadness in the 9-11 story. It is primarily a tragic, sad story. What I have tried to do with September 12th is it's subtitled An American Comeback Story. And I have really tried to point out that, in fact, what happened in the aftermath of 9-11 is something that all Americans can be very proud of. Because for a brief moment, for a brief period, everybody was united. It didn't make a difference what your politics were didn't make a difference what your income level was. Everybody came together and it was actually, again, given not minimizing the tragedy that it was, it was actually a very nice time in this country because 
And the book tells some of the tales of how strangers helped other strangers during this whole thing. And it was a period where neighbors were helping neighbors, where communities throughout greater New York, especially in New Jersey and Connecticut, that were hit mightily, losing lots of moms and dads on 9-11, how they came together and supported one another. And in my case, what I uncovered, and most of what's in the book has never been told before, is the story behind this story of how the Wall Street Journal, which was located its headquarters seven stories just across the street from the World Trade Center. So by 9.30 in the morning on September 11, its headquarters were really destroyed. Everybody had been evacuated. They couldn't, they had no access to their computers, to their emails, to their file folders, to any of those things. But they still said, we will not be defeated by terrorists. And they made a commitment. And I used to work for the Wall Street Journal, so I know that it has a lot of people with diverse opinions. But there was universal agreement that they would do everything they could against very tall odds to publish the paper the next day. And it was for two reasons. One is they wanted to reassure their readers that the world was going to be okay, that there would be a next day. And they understood the obligation to their readers and what a shock it would be. They had about 1.8 million subscribers if the paper didn't arrive. But the second thing was they really and truly, and they talked about it, they wanted to respond to the terrorists and say, despite your desire to disrupt our lives, we will not let you. <laughs> and so it is a comeback story. And it's a story of a group of people. These were business reporters, economic reporters. They were not war correspondents or soldiers, but they behaved in many ways like war correspondents on 9-11, literally having to walk through decapitated bodies and pools of blood to interview people and to escape on their own. And it's interesting when we look at comebacks, all that transpired on that day of September 11th, for many of us, it took days, weeks, months, and in some cases, depending on your person or depending on your industry, it's taken years to recover. And some might claim we've never been able to recover in certain ways. And yet what you're just describing is that the Wall Street Journal staff recovered essentially within less than a 24-hour period. They were able to come back and produce a newspaper that, granted, the content wasn't a typical Wall Street Journal issue, but it was filled with compelling news, information, commentary, observation. So while the book is full of stories of individual journalists and technicians and drivers within the Wall Street Journal family, can you talk to us a little bit about what was it that allowed these individuals to come together in such rapid formation while at the same time worrying for their own safety and the safety of their families? So I think in the book, September 12th, hidden in plain sight, there is a leadership and management book. It's not written, Rob, as a book specifically targeting leaders or managers. But in fact, I have a chapter in there titled September 11 didn't happen in a day. And the reason it's titled that way is because so many things preceded September 11th 
that Dow Jones, the parent of the Wall Street Journal, and the paper did correctly in terms of management directive, in terms of preparation, in terms of sort of setting motivation for people, that had that not been in place, there's absolutely no way the newspaper would have published the next day. And I have it here, the wording from the Pulitzer Prize Committee. So the next day's edition of the journal, for the first time in its 109-year history at the time, won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news. And the Pulitzer Committee said it won it for its comprehensive and insightful coverage executed under the most difficult circumstances. Well, the interesting part of that really is the beginning, comprehensive and insightful coverage. They did a phenomenal job. And I'm going to continue to address your question, but let me set the stage just a little bit where technology was in 2001. We're talking over Zoom. No Zoom in 2001. No Facebook. No Twitter. Most people, most Americans got onto the internet to the extent that they had internet access, dialing up on America Online. It was a dial-up connection. Some of the more sophisticated internet surfers had DSL lines, but many just used conventional phone lines. So on 9-11, and Lower Manhattan was a communications hub. There was a huge 9X, which used to be New York telephone, switching stations down there. The World Trade Centers themselves had television towers, etc. Communication on September 11th, besides the fact that the technology was still in its infancy of things like the internet, communication was horrible. People couldn't reach one another by mobile phone. Most of the people in lower Manhattan couldn't use wired lines. So not only did you have a Wall Street Journal that couldn't access its own newsroom and headquarters, but most of the journalists could not talk by phone to anybody. They had certainly no video communications. In the end, they relied primarily on email, which continued for the most part to work. And so journalists who were dispersed, stayed at home, dispersed all over. We have in the book, I detail one journalist who made his way to a elementary school in across the Hudson River in New Jersey and worked from there. Another journalist made it to the Highlights for Children magazine headquarters in Massachusetts. So Highlights for Children, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but most of us who have children or grandchildren know this magazine. It's quite common in dentist offices and doctor's offices. This journalist, her name is Ianthi Dugan, she went there and said, I need access to the phones. I need access to the internet. Can I work from here? And they graciously said yes. And it's a little bit humorous. And I tried to infuse the book with some humor in the sense that she would call up people, leave a message and say, would you call me back at this number? And they'd call back and get an operator or an answering machine that said, you've reached highlights for children, but she was a Wall Street Journal reporter. And so truly what it took on the part of these people was a sense of, I can do this without being able to talk to a manager or a boss. I feel empowered to do it. I sense what needs to be done. And so many, literally dozens of people with no direction, either did their jobs, the same jobs that they had on September 10th of 2001, or where they saw that somebody was missing 
There was a copy editor missing. There was a reporter who covered a certain beat who was missing. They filled in without instruction, Rob. In other words, so it is a terrific story on leadership and management. And I do go back literally to the 1960s, and I trace how the culture of Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal prepared. Nobody anticipated it. There wasn't a soul who anticipated losing their headquarters and not being able to return for about a year. But they had systems and much more importantly, a culture of professionalism in place that allowed them to publish a paper when, by anybody's standard, they never should have been able to publish. When you talk about culture, Dean, I think they had an internal permission to do what was necessary to produce award-winning journalism. And uh, obviously, in this environment, in fact, in the beginning chapters of the book, you talk about how I believe the correct title is the managing editor of the journal was missing. And presumed dead. And so everyone's waiting for marching orders, especially those who aren't on site. They don't know that the journal's office has been essentially destroyed by the falling of the towers across the street. So everyone has to make some real-time decisions to act on their own instead of sitting on their hands. And the other thing that you talk about extensively in the book is that their journalistic nature took over. I'm curious if you could describe a little bit more about what it means to be a journalist in that type of environment. I love your characterization that journalists are professional observers. So they couldn't just observe, though. They had to act. And your background in journalism, you've got your undergraduate degree at Northwestern, your graduate degree at Columbia. You've been a journalist all your adult life. What is it about journalists in that particular environment that you believe causes them not just to observe, but to observe and act? You remember that Clark Kent would go into a phone booth and he would come out as Superman. Well, in some ways, when journalists are faced with a breaking story, they're faced with a crisis. Usually it's not about their own news organization or something that's happening just across the street. But in essence, they do go into the phone booth and they do come out with a somewhat different persona. And in some ways, Rob, it's a dangerous persona because they disregard the physical threat to their own lives. It is what is behind war correspondence and their willingness to be embedded. They kind of delude themselves into believing that since they have a mission and the mission is to witness and tell the story, that they'll be okay. And in the case of the Wall Street Journal, that was almost true, not entirely, but almost true. Many of the journalists who put on their Superman capes on 9-11, days, weeks, and years later, started suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome based upon really things they witnessed during that time. They witnessed, you talked about the missing managing editor. He says he wishes he could forget and never will the sight of the people jumping off of the Twin Towers and making these pink puffs when they hit either the canopies or the streets. And there's another journalist in the book who I talk about He's actually in the first chapter, John Hilsenrath. Years later, he was out with his kids in a barn, and he saw 
what do they call it? The things that cowboys wear on their legs. The straps. Or... Yes, straps. And magically, they turned into disembodied limbs, arms and legs that were hanging in the barns. He saw piles of grass cuttings and again thought they were bodies. One of the graphic designers for the Wall Street Journal, who without this graphic designer, his name is Joe Disney, not spelled like Walt, he spells it D-I-Z-N-E-Y. But Joe Disney developed a bad case of post-traumatic stress, I think a decade or more after 9-11. But for that 12-hour period, for that 24-hour period, they go into this mental state where they basically think really wrongly that they are impervious to it because they're there to cover the story. So it's not a mentality, Rob, that happens. Again, I was a reporter for the journal. So if I had to go down to the New York Stock Exchange and interview some of the traders on the floor, I didn't think to myself, well, I'm Superman here. I can just do anything. But under tough circumstances, and I had a few as a journalist too, where at one point I thought some assassin had been sent to kill me, literally. I ducked under a bed in a hotel room. It turned out it was room service, but you know, at the time it seemed probable that it was an assassin, but I was still on duty. You mentioned John Hilsenrath and yes. his story, which is, it just grips you as soon as you begin reading the book in chapter one. His story just is very gripping. It pulls the reader very intimately into the story. And I commend you for that. And those who are fortunate enough to obtain a copy of September 12th, I think will attest to the fact that it's really the proverbial page turner because these are real stories that you're reading about. But one of the things that John said to the managing editor as things were unfolding that morning, and they were all still gathered within the Wall Street Journal offices. And I'd like you to comment on this. He walked into his boss's office and he basically said, quoting your book, he said, I'm ready to go. What do you want me to do? I think there are so many lessons to be learned from that. Once again, drawing from your journalism background, is that the way journalists have been historically trained or is that more a reflection of John's character? No, how, how would you comment? I don't think it's trained. I think the selection bias is that people who go into journalism, not just John Hills and that, but people who go into journalism have that predisposition of, in fact, wanting to be involved, wanting to be engaged. I want to tell you a quick anecdote about John Hills and Rath, and then I want to tell you a second anecdote about that is really, I think, one of the more amazing anecdotes in the book that I don't think has ever been publicly reported before. First on John Hilsenrath. So he was married to a journalist on 9-11. She was a broadcast journalist and she happened to be at home. And all of this is detailed in the book. And before phone service went out, he was on the phone with her. Her name is Christina. And Christina begged him. She said, we have two small children at home. And if you die down there, I'm going to be a widow. And she really thought she was going to become a widow that day. And Christina begged him to leave the story. It's a job. It's leave the story and come home. And he said, I can't. And he acknowledges that it was crass, 
but he basically said, this is the Super Bowl of journalism and I've got to pursue it. Okay. That's one anecdote. And that does reflect a little bit on the idea that a story like that. And again, John is a terrific reporter at the time, his beat was academic economics <laughs> had nothing whatsoever to do with terrorism or dead bodies or whatnot, but that's what he did. Then the second person I think is even more amazing. His name is Phil Connors, and he was a copy editor on the paper's Leisure and Arts page. So the journal is actually two papers in one. I think, Rob, you realize this. There's the sort of the news section, and then there are the editorial and Leisure and Arts pages. Well, Phil Connors was not a reporter on the news side. He was a copy editor working for Paul Gigo and at the time Bob Bartley on the Leisure and Arts page. And leisure was an operative word because the editors came in leisurely. You know, <laughs> it wasn't like they had to cover breaking news. So when the Twin Towers were hit, Phil Connors was riding the subway into lower Manhattan and could look out the windows and see, it looked like two flaming industrial towers. He saw that and he said, the paper's gonna need me today. Now, again, he's a copy editor who normally edits book reviews, film reviews, dance reviews, but said the paper's gonna need me today. There's a long story about what happens, but what basically transpires is they kick him like everybody else off the subways. He wants to get there. He shows his press pass they won't let him by the police barricades. Literally, the policeman says, I don't care if you're the president of the United States, I'm not letting you through. So he sneaks down into a subway station. There's nobody in the station. There's a train half in the station, half out. He crawls down onto the tracks. It's pitch black. He feels his way along the wall with some light from the grates above until he gets closer to where the Wall Street Journal is located and then surfaces again, walks up nine flights of stairs to the Wall Street Journal newsroom, which had been evacuated two hours earlier, and is the only person in the newsroom, but is still trying to figure out how he can contribute to that day's reporting. So, I mean, that gives you a sense of how driven journalists are, even journalists who are either covering academic economics or our copy editing, film reviews, book reviews, and the like. And I would add, within the book, September 12th, you've included some fascinating photos and images of that day, pictures of the Wall Street Journal offices after the towers came down, and the devastation that the offices experienced, handwritten notes from reporters, who are covering it in real time. So it's full of great images as well, which I think your readers will find fascinating. So if you were to summarize the purpose of writing the September 12th, what would that be, Dean? All these years later, 20 years after the fact, why did you feel compelled to write this story? I'm a ink and paper addict. <laughs> what happened was, Rob, I started to write a biography of Paul Steiger. Paul Steiger was the managing editor who went missing. And he's a very fascinating journalist. He's really one of a kind in his generation. He served 
totally for 16 years as the managing editor of the paper, the longest serving managing editor ever. He left and started ProPublica. ProPublica is a nonprofit investigative journalism organization. It has become a major force of investigative journalism, particularly politics, but other topics as well. And so I set out to write a biography of Paul Steiger, and he and I were conversing weekly so I could take his oral history. And I actually thought that his role in 9-11 would be confined to a single chapter in his biography. And so being a journalist, I started not only asking him, but asking other people who were involved on 9-11. And what I came across was incredible amounts of information that I knew had never been seen in the public before. I literally have more than a thousand emails that were generated on 9-11 by staff of Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal in real time. I have hard copies of emails that were generated. I have diaries that reporters kept. Well, when I started, I thought I was writing a chapter in a biography of one journalist, but it was too tantalizing, to be honest with you, to let it be there. And of course, I knew that the 20th anniversary, this is in July of last year, July of 2020, I knew that the 20th anniversary would be coming up this month here in September 2021. And I just thought, I've got to tell this story. And it is that I had to tell the story. I felt like I didn't have a choice. And I mentioned to you when we were just greeting one another at the beginning. So I've dedicated now it's eight months, nine months to writing this book because it had to be told. And there's so much in there that I know that people have never read before. And so it kind of goes to what you were asking. I mean, why does John Hilsenrath, a academic economic reporter, go to his boss and say, put me in the game? Well, it's the same thing. Put me in the game. I want to tell this story. Also, I don't want this point to be lost as well. Within the book, those who obtain the copy of September 12th will also have exclusive access interviews that you do with panels of journalists that were involved in this. Just real quickly, could you share with our audience a little bit about that? Because it's a bonus to the book that I think is really going to be interesting. So in March of 2021, I put together four different panels featuring 19 different journalists who are listed in the book. And basically the goal was to not so much get them to recollect what I was already writing in the book, but in many ways to talk about how it impacted them and sort of what has become of them over the last 20 years. And so we did it in four different panels that had one panel focused on what happened at the copy editing and production pop-up newsroom that they created on the spot 50 miles from Manhattan in South Brunswick. Another session focused, there were five writers and all five writers participated. I talk about what they did in the book. A month after 9-11, the journal ran this opus feature called Five Lives, where it went back and it not only looked at five of the people who had been caught up directly in the World Trade Center, but it looked at their families and how it all impacted them. So I had one video panel on that. And then we had video panels featuring John Hilsenrath, 
Alan Murray, who at the time was the bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal in Washington, D.C., Dan Henninger, who was and is the deputy editor of the editorial pages. And to some degree, they repeated some of their story from 9-11. But as importantly, they reflected on the lessons the country has learned and that they themselves have learned. And in the book, towards the very, very back, there are instructions on, if you have the book, how you can access the videos for free. There's no additional cost. There's Zoom videos. Each of the four panels, again, had five journalists, and I moderated them. Yeah, and they're just fascinating. So I really would encourage my audience to get access to those. It just brings even so much more value and rich content to your work, Dean. And Dean, speaking of journalists, it's interesting that in this case, you're telling the story of the people that tell the stories. And you're giving us insight into their thinking and what they experience and what they've experienced since. Many of the audience members of Game Face Execs podcast are people in business, government, academia, the arts, entertainment, but they're considered leaders. What do you think leaders in all these disparate industries can learn from journalists? And then I'd be interested to know, what do you think journalists can learn from leaders in business, leaders in the arts, leaders in academia? Let me answer the second part first, which is most journalists don't really get to know leaders in business, the arts, etc. They never get to know them. They get to interview them, but they really don't get to know them. And then periodically along comes a journalist who crosses over and gets into the corporate world. And he or she either starts their own company, their own organization, or they become a fairly senior person at a company. And without fail, whenever I talk to these people, and Rob, over the course of my career, I have literally interviewed thousands and thousands of journalists about their work. They are amazed. They never understood, no matter how many years they were reporting on business, they really never understood what it felt like to walk in the shoes of a business executive. I mean, if, in terms of your audience, I think if they would understand that journalists don't really understand what they do and they don't understand their goals and what motivates them and their pressures, they need to read, journalists need to read a book or books from some of these people that really reveal what they do, the, sort of the same type of thing. Now, the other side of the question is, what can your audience learn from journalists? And I want to also tell you that for the most part, the answer to that is not much. However, <laughs> not much, because what I think my book, September 12th, says is that they can learn a lot from effective managers and leaders within news organizations. It's not so much that the rank and file journalist has a lot to offer. It is that people, again, I started out to do a story on Paul Steiger. It's people like Paul Steiger. He really merits an American Management Association award for management, not for journalism. I mean, he's won incredible number of journalism awards, but the reality of it was he was, during his 16 years at the Wall Street Journal, an incredible manager. There were three parts to what he did that made him effective. One is he shared his vision for what he wanted the people who reported to him to do. 
this is how I see the Wall Street Journal. This is what I think our mission is. This is how I want you to approach your jobs. So that was step one. Step two was to hire competent people who would understand that mission and weed out those people who didn't. And then step three was get out of their way. Just don't micromanage. Give them the authority they need. And what I say in the book is that Paul was always quick to praise publicly and reluctant to criticize privately. But that's what he did. In public, he was always pumping up his team and his staff. And when somebody did something that they shouldn't have or missed an opportunity, he quietly corrected them. And he built loyalty that really and literally his staff was willing to walk through blood and guts and broken glass and all sorts of stuff because they thought he might be dead. There is a great quote from a woman named Kathy Panagulius near the end of the book where she basically says, we would have done anything for Paul Steiger. And if he was dead, we would have done it for his deputies. And if they were dead, we would have done it for whoever stepped in to their place. Basically saying we were loyal team players on Paul Steiger's team. And so, again, those three steps are express your vision clearly, put the people in place who understand it and can follow it, and then get out of their way. And one of the other things I liked about the way Paul Steiger managed the Wall Street Journal was he encouraged people to take risks. It's a very competitive industry. I mean, the Wall Street Journal competes with Reuters and Bloomberg and the business section of the New York Times and the Financial Times. It's very, very competitive. He wanted his people to be first and to be best, but he would let them take risks in order to do it. And when those risks blew up in their face, he told them to move on. Okay, we tried. It didn't work. You tried. You're a good journalist. You're a good reporter. Forget about it. Move on. And it reminds me, again, I don't like too many sports analogies, but it reminds me of world-class quarterbacks who throw that interception. It reminds me of a baseball player who in the bottom of the ninth inning with bases loaded and his team behind strikes out. If you dwell on those mistakes, then you're going to fail. And Steiger understood that in the journalism realm, that you have to let journalists take a chance. And when they fall on their face, you've got to tell them, you're a good quarterback. You're a good hitter. Get back up, pick up your reporter's notebook, go back out there, go back to work. You're reminding me of a show that's gained a lot of popularity in the last year or so, Ted Lasso. Sure. On Apple. They're quickly becoming in our lexicon lassoisms around offices and gatherings. And one of the lasso quotes I remember is in the early episodes, he took one of his players aside and he said, you know, which is the happiest animal on earth? He said, no, coach. He said, a goldfish. Do you know why? No, coach because they only have a 10-second memory. <laughs> so perhaps if managers had 10-second memories when allowing their folks to take risks and not dwelling on it or not holding it, holding it against them, and that goes back to your comment earlier about culture, the kind of culture that the Wall Street Journal had and continues to have. So 
Let me ask you, I couldn't complete this podcast without querying you about the journalism industry. It's no secret, Dean, that you're in an industry right now where the trust seems to be plummeting right now among the public and journalists, or maybe journalistic institutions. Whether it's warranted or not is a completely different story. But the fact is that when it comes to politicians or media, they're kind of neck and neck as far as the institutions that the public is increasingly not trusting. First of all, what's your reaction to that? Because this is your craft. This is your career. You've spent years and years doing great work that's been noted nationally and internationally. So how does that make you feel when I say something like that, that the journalism industry is really taking it on the chin when it comes to that trust factor between you and and your readers? I'm very old school, Rob. I believe profoundly that you shouldn't know my politics. You shouldn't know my opinion unless I'm writing for the opinion pages. And that has changed radically since I left the Wall Street Journal. And somebody asked me just the other day whether I think it will ever swing back. And the short answer is no, I don't think it will. I think we now have reached a point in this country where every news organization, including the Wall Street Journal, will be labeled with either progressive or with conservative, far right, far left, etc., and that's not the editorial pages, it's the opinion pages. And I think America lost something for that. I also believe that organic, smaller news organizations are emerging and will emerge that will still embrace my old school value that says, try to tell the story and what your opinion is really doesn't matter. Keep your opinion and your thoughts out of it to the extent humanly possible. It's not possible to be purely objective in anything that you write, but it is possible to strive for that. And I don't think journalists today do that. You asked me before why I wrote this book, and I told you that one is it was a story I couldn't resist. But really another reason for writing it was to show what good journalism, to remind people what good journalism looked like. And as I said, in the newsroom, I know sort of the demographic composition of the newsroom on 9-11. And the newsroom was very different politically than the editorial pages than certainly it is now. But it didn't matter. These people, they didn't sit there and say, well, do the terrorists have a case? Should we be looking into what drove them? Maybe eventually they came out with some of those stories too. But on 9-11, for the September 12th paper, it was what happened? What did people see? What will be the immediate impact on this country, on travel, on business, etc. And so I hope that September 12th reminds people what journalism is when journalists keep their personal views and opinions to themselves and concentrate on reporting what the story is. Well, as I've read the book, Dean, I would tell you that not only was I interested in it and it pulled me in because it brought back history to me, And history reported accurately, I would add. Yes. But it also felt nostalgic. No one's nostalgic for tragedy. I felt nostalgia for just pure reporting that was not tainted with personal ideologies or opinion. If I want that back in those days and even today, I know where to go. 
But just getting that straight down the line journalism, you reminded me of the people in that day, including yourself, that that's the way they were trained. That's the way they thought. That's the way they wrote. And so I really appreciated that journey down memory lane, so to speak. You know, Rob, I don't know quite candidly. The book's only been for sale for a few weeks now. It is available on Amazon. And I will tell your viewers and listeners before we sign off where they can get a signed copy of the book. But I don't know yet what the feedback will be to the book. It's early on. But it does strike me that I am going to come in for some criticism for not taking a opinionated position in the book. And I'm not even sure what that opinionated position might be, but it certainly might be that some class of people I didn't represent well enough within the book or whatever it happens to be. And that's just the age we're living in now. I'm old enough that I think for the rest of my authorship and journalism career, I will continue to do it as I always have. But if you were talking earlier about younger people, if you're going into journalism now in your 20s, even in your 30s, I think the broader expectation is at national news organizations that you are going to infuse what you write or broadcast with your opinions. Well, I encourage people to get their copy of September 12th as soon as possible. Not only read it for the accurate history reporting that you include, but also, as I've just suggested, read it so that you can get a glimpse into what traditional, or I would say proper journalism is all about. And I commend you, Dean, for doing that. And that's why I admire you. I admire your work. So please share with us not only how we can get a signed copy of the book, but also where else can we find information about Dean Ropart and the other work that you do? Well, thank you. I'll give you a few leads and thanks for the opportunity to be a little bit self-promotional. I appreciate it. So what the book does have a website. It is september-12th.com, spelled like the book, T-W-E-L-F-T-H, september-12th.com. And there is actually additional information that's not in the book up on the site. Because of the time constraints, some of the things like a full source notes, I haven't had time to put in the print edition, but you can get them online. And there's something of a longer biography about me. There's a website if you want to get a signed first edition. It's available in softcover and hardcover that I can direct you to. And it shows some of the other books I've written and members of my family have written. I have my wife, Taya, who helps me with everything. She is a successful children's book author, and she's done that. My son, who is a middle school teacher, has written a book for middle school students. And my daughter, who is a professional photographer, has a book of her photography, a gallery of her photography available. It's at gutenbergsstore.com. And I have to spell it for you. I'll say it again, Gutenberg Store. So I wasn't sure of it when I first bought it, but Gutenberg, the guy who invented the printing press, he only spells his name with one T. So it's G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R. Then on the internet, I didn't put an apostrophe, but it's Gutenberg's possessive. So it's Gutenberg's S, 
and then store, S-T-O-R-E. So two S's, one T and two S's, gutenbergstore.com. And there, the book is available, this book, September 12th, in three formats. Hardback, which if you purchase it, I'll sign and, and send to you. Soft cover, which if you purchase it, I'll sign and send to you. And as a digital ebook, which I haven't figured out how I could possibly sign, but which if you purchase <laughs> it there, I will make sure that you have that. And then while you're there, you can browse some of the other Rothbard family books. Gutenberg's store is kind of a captive. One other thing, if I can mention it, you reach with your video and podcast an audience that is very complimentary to an audience that I have been speaking to for the past decade. I host and produce a weekly podcast called mondaymorningradio.com. So mondaymorningradio.com. And it either features business owners and leaders talking about what they do and how they have achieved their success, or it features various experts talking like Ken Blanchard and Charles Duhigg, who I've had on as guests, Jen Sincero, some others, talking about what business owners, founders, entrepreneurs ought to know. So that's pretty much my background. Thank you for the opportunity to share it. And all of those URLs that you've just shared, Dean, for those watching on YouTube, that's all there in the captions, so you can get those accurately. Well, Dean, once again, we congratulate you on September 12th and the terrific work that you've done to put this together. It's just page after page full of great content. So thank you not only for in this special week of the 20th anniversary of September 11th, for reminding us of the history and the sacrifices that thousands of Americans made on that day and in the days that followed, but also honoring those people who lived to tell us about it, who have given us the proper and the accurate history. So I commend you for it and thank you for it and all the best um, as September 12th becomes read by so many people around the world. Rob, terrific to be with you. I sincerely enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of this episode of Game Face Execs. If you found any of it useful or helpful, please rate or like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I always appreciate you referring us to others as well. I'll see you next week. Until then, persuade, influence, inspire. Inspire.